All right, here's what we're going to do right now. Um, today, uh, one of the things that we do, if you're new here, we take books of the Bible and we teach to them. And we've done that for the past 16 years since we started. And we've been through lots of different books. Today, currently, we've actually been going through the book of Revelation. And we're actually at a place that, um, again, I'm well aware it's Mother's Day. I didn't necessarily organize for this to happen, but we're going to be talking about hell. And, um, and, and <laughs> judgment and you know, and Jesus' vindication. So maybe there's something here to all of this in which Jesus acknowledges. He knows the hell you guys go through. He loves you, and he's going to vindicate it all in the end. Um, but one of the advantages of just going through the Bible like that or going through books in the Bible like that is, is you're basically forced to cover everything. You can't just sort of pick and choose, you know, what feels good and what seems to be right in the moment for the culture at that time, that what's going to be helping felt needs. Uh, it's, it's really, you're just forced to deal with everything. Uh, topics and subjects that normally wouldn't want to necessarily identify or deal with or work with, but they're there in a text, you got to deal with them. And that's kind of where we're at today. We are at this section here in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 14. We're looking at chapter 14 and actually the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, chapter 15. These two chapters that basically deal with this issue of judgment, of uh, suffering, of hardship, of hell that Jesus is going to come and bring um, in terms of judgment upon those who are sinful, those who rebel, um, and ultimately those who are actually following the dragon that was ult- uh, identified in uh, Revelation chapter 12. So with that being said, before we jump in, I want to preface one last thing before I pray and before we begin, is uh, I, I want you guys to think in terms of, now my voice is going, I don't know what it is I have, I won't shake anybody's hand today because I'm sick, I don't know if it's allergies or I'm just feel like I'm dying inside. I don't know what the deal is. My voice is going to be lost. I got one more service to go. My work day is not over. I hope you guys have a great vacation today, but I'm not done until like nine o'clock. So I guarantee tonight while I'm sitting on my couch watching last night's Saturday Night Live rerun, I will not have a voice anymore, but that's great because I get to talk about Jesus's grace and love in terms of coming into this world and bringing about salvation and saving and rescuing people that have basically been caught up in their own life, in their own existence, and struggling, and ultimately will die. But what I want for you to think about, as we go through the book of Revelation, as really, as you read through any book in the Bible, and I just even want you to think about this, just in general, in terms of Christianity, is God has a story, God's story, we call this, or the narrative of God, or this um, divine drama, we call it sometimes the drama of redemption, In other words, God is ultimately over all things. He uh, presides over all things. He has control over all things. Uh, The big five-cent word for that is he's sovereign, meaning he has absolute authority over all things. Nothing moves God. Nothing shakes God. Nothing changes God's mind. Uh, God's counsel is set. God does what he wants. He is God ultimately over all things. Now, that being said, we, dip, we typically would call that God's story. He has a story. But there are also subplots to God's story. And all throughout the Bible, you see these subplots. Subplots being Adam and Eve interfacing with the dragon, falling into sin because of the dragon, eating the Turkish delight from the dragon, right? That's what Satan does. You guys all saw Chronicles of Narnia? He all tempts us with our own various forms of Turkish delight. Some it's sexual adultery and fornication. Some it's internet porn. Some it's your career that you keep endlessly pursuing and you sacrifice your family and everything else until you obtain it. For others of it's you, it's knowledge, it's information. Whatever it is, it's all Turkish delight. It all comes from the hand of an evil king, okay? Satan, the dragon. These are subplots, but they are not the whole they basically go into the whole of the story. And what I've said before in the past, I want you guys to think about this in terms of the bigger picture, the bigger whole, is that the glory of salvation, the beauty of salvation, is that God, God in his magnificent story, this overarching, ongoing, eternal, never-ending, not like the movie, the never-ending story of God, is that he invites you and I into that story. American Christianity has actually hijacked that and distorted it and made it about you and I. And we say things like this. Ah, if you pray the sinner's prayer, then you can invite God into your story. That's totally false. 
No, no, no. God invites us into his story. He gets the glory. I get the great joy. I get this great honor of being adopted, brought into, forgiven for, living in my story. And the story I live in, that's the problem with humanity. But it's part of this deception of the dragon. He convinces us that each one of our stories is the ultimate story. Is that, is that accurate? You agree with that? I mean, would you say that that's not the world in which we live in? Everybody thinks their story is more significant, better than everybody else's story. And what we have is everybody living their own little plot, their own little story. And what ends up happening is there's, nobody has resolve. There's no resolve in anybody's story because there's always this constant ongoing destruction, hardship, dilemma, trouble, tribulation, pain. Uh, how do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with hardships? How do you deal with things that come up that, just, that, 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 you, that are not part of the original plan? You never planned to get cancer. You never planned to have your spouse die. You never planned to have your child get lost. You never planned this stuff. But you're throwing it, and now you're left with this constant, endless, ceaseless tension with no resolve. And the beauty of the gospel is that God summons us to enter into his story get this, it has resolve. It was on the cross that Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. In the book of Revelation, we know. I cheated. I read the end. <laughs> At the end, God wins. At the end, God wipes away the tears that come from pain-filled eyes. At the end, God removes the hardship, the pain. God, at the end, removes evildoers and people that continue to just align themselves with the dragon, feast on whatever type or form of Turkish delight he offers at that moment that's trendy at that time, he removes it all, and we win too. And we're going to read this amazing passage where he says, and those who follow the lamb, they'll cease from their pain, from their labor, and they'll enter into his rest. That's what I'm talking about. That's what Christianity is, guys. You know, I, I, again, if you're like, oh, I thought Christianity was going to church for an hour on Sunday and criticizing everything that goes on. And that, I thought that was Christianity or reading a Bible or living religious lifestyle or, you know, doing all sorts of things that are completely archaic and don't make any sense in today's culture or looking a particular way or not cussing or not drinking beer or light beer or whatever the case is. You're like, I, that, I thought that was Christianity. No, you've been sold a lie, a deception from, the sat from Satan himself to get you to think that various forms of legalism or various forms of just simple religion is what will help you or take care of you. And in the end, you buy it and you find that the one who's fed it to you is actually not the lamb, but the dragon. And in this ironic twist of the entire book, the one who wins in the end is not this vast, powerful dragon, but this humble lamb. I mean, talk about an amazing story that God summons us and invites us into. So that's basically, in a nutshell, what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to pray. We're going to get to work because what ends up happening here in the text that we're going to be looking at today is Jesus will come and he will judge those who follow, those who consistently, persistently say uh, and deny his salvation, deny his his life, deny his goodness, and continue to feed out of the palm in the hand of the dragon. He will destroy the dragon. He will destroy all those who continue to follow the dragon. So let's pray. Let's get to work. And a lot of stuff to take a look at. Jesus, right now we pray. You'd help us. Give us strength right now. Open our eyes, Lord God. God, I pray that you'd help us to see how deep, how great, how strong, how binding, how all-pervasive the deception goes. But God, at the same time, I pray that you would also remind us of how deep, how wide, how great, how far, how vast is the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. To know the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth of the love of God that's in Christ. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes to see how great our salvation is for what we've been saved for. And we ask all of these things this morning in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to get to work. 
uh, chapter 14, verse 1 through about verse 5, we looked at last week, and basically this covers a group of about 144,000 people that John identifies. Uh, we saw these people last week, and they're identified as basically being the first fruits. These are the finest and the best of the best of those who have stayed committed, have followed God, that they have remained faithful. Uh, they have not given in to the attempts or the attacks of the beast. Uh, there is a, a phrase there that it's used. It says that they have not, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. It says they're virgins. Uh, some translations or some Bible scholars think that the concept of being virgins, meaning they didn't have sex with other women, it's very possible. But I also kind of think as well in the context, they didn't have sex with the beast. Because you're going to find out in just a few minutes here that the beast is like a harlot. And all the nations of the earth get in bed with her and have sex with her. It's this very graphic picture of seduction and of defilement. That, that's, what, that's what a prostitute does. She, she seduces. You buy the bait. You drink out of the cup, not knowing there's poison. You eat the bait, not aware of the hook that's there. You think it's good, you think it brings pleasure for a season, for a moment, and then once you get there, once you do it, once you find yourself engaged, you begin to realize it's poisonous, it's deadly, it's horrifying, and it's defiling. And that's what he's describing it as. So this 144,000 are fine, choice, uh, men, saints of God, following the lamb wherever he goes. And then now, what he's going to begin to do now, about verse 6, on down to the end of the chapter... He's going to continue in this interesting progression that John has started from the very beginning. Is John oftentimes writes in these series of numbers. Um, how many letters to the churches were there? Remember? Seven. How many trumpets were blown? How many bowls of wrath are going to be poured out? If you read ahead. Seven. Okay, you get the idea. The word number seven keeps repeating itself. Well, John's going to continue that number repetition again. Uh, throughout this chapter, you're going to see seven messengers, seven angels, uh, people that come uh, with a purpose. Uh, the first three angels are going to be identified as those that come preaching this everlasting gospel. Uh, the last three are going to be bringing this harvest, and the uh, seventh angel that's sort of sandwiched in between the first three and the second three is actually Jesus himself. He's a messenger, okay, angelos, messenger coming forth from God. And in this particular setting, you're going to see Jesus at the center stage of all of these events that are happening. Now, I do believe that this is referring to something yet future, something that has not yet quite happened. And so what we're going to be seeing is sort of these events take place. But at the same time, a lot of what you're going to see um, is very reminiscent, very, very similar to what has already been happening throughout all history. And I'll show you what I mean by that in just a second. So verse 6 starts off with the message of the very first angel that comes. And then it says this, John said, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So this particular angel is going to be communicating, conveying. It says he's flying overhead, meaning he's just kind of like at... Uh, noonday, like when the sun's at the highest uh, zenith in the sky, it's kind of where the angel's at. He's right there where everybody sees him, and he's proclaiming to all peoples, nations, languages, and tongues. Verse 7, and he said with a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. So the message that this guy preaches is basically uh, challenging people, I think personally challenging them along the lines of their value systems. In other words, what you value, what do you value, and he challenges the people that are there on the earth to value God. In a way, he terms this, he says, to fear God. And the reason why he tells the people to fear God is because quite simply, nobody does. People just aren't fearing God. We're afraid of everything else. We're afraid of what could happen. We're afraid of what would happen if, you know, we stood up for our faith and somebody got offended. We don't want to offend anybody. I mean, that's the nation, that's a nation in the culture in which we live in. It's people don't want to offend anybody. What ends up happening is if we all sort of adopt that mentality, just like, I don't want to offend anybody. Well, you do end up inevitably offending somebody. You offend God. You offend God. You be silent on the things that God wants us to speak forth on. You might not offend the people around you, but you end up offending God. God doesn't want us to offend him. 
He wants us, if we have to, offend other people. And therefore, the way he poises this, he says, to fear God. To fear God. Don't be afraid of what other people can do and what they will do, but fear God. Here's what he says. Uh, Later on, actually, Jesus, I should say, in Matthew chapter uh, about 10, verse 28, Jesus says this. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus' own words, he's like, listen, be careful about who you fear. I mean, part of the problem with a lot of us is we, we tend to be men pleasers, right? I mean, if you look at our heart, oftentimes, we want people to like us. I mean, yes, it's high school all over again. We just want people to like us. That's why we oftentimes do the things that we do. That's why we pursue the things we pursue. That's why we publicize things that we publicize. That's why we post things on our Facebook profile because we post them. Because we want somebody to acknowledge us and say, ah, you're awesome. I love you. You're amazing. We just want to be acknowledged. We want somebody to stop what they're doing and recognize who we are, recognize what we're doing. And at the end of the day, we got to be careful. Because there's always this perennial temptation to just simply fall prey to fearing everybody else, to recognizing, being recognized by somebody else other than God. And that's one of the reasons why we oftentimes sin. Rather than having a parameter set about us and about our heart and just simply living in a life that has a resolve that says, I will do what God wants me to do, period. We modify it a little bit. And the reason why we modify it a little bit is because we're like, I don't know what today's gonna bring. I mean, someone might, you know, want me to do something that totally runs contrary to my conscience or totally runs contrary to God's word. So that's okay. I mean, if you're in a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, we kind of keep those options open a little bit. Like, you know what? I'll give my life to God about 85%, but I'll leave about 15% open because my girlfriend might want to have sex with me. So I'll just leave that option open just a little bit, just in case, because I don't want to offend her. You see what I'm saying? We got to be careful. We want to make certain. And the same thing goes even for business transactions. You could be like, I'm a businessman for Christ. Great. How do we live? How do we live? Do we fear God? Do we live in a mentality that's ethical? Do we make ethical decisions? Do we live in a way in which the business decisions we make will give glory, honor, praise to God? Or somehow to stuff a little more money in our pocket no matter what the cost? That's what I'm talking about. We must understand there's always this temptation to fear other people, to put them in priority over God. So he makes this first appeal to our value system. What do we supremely, ultimately value? Okay, the second angel comes on the scene, and he says another angel, second, followed, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations to drink the wine of the passion, here's that phrase, of her sexual morality. I mean, John wants us to think in very graphic terms here. I mean, to me, it's actually astounding the way he uses this. Because, I mean, honestly, good Christians are like, we don't talk about sexual morality. The Bible does. I mean, I don't, again, that may be part of the deception. Maybe part of the deception, we're like, it's just not proper. You know, like, you know what? It's in the Bible. You know, I don't know where this accent came from. It was so good. And what ends up happening... (laughs) is we fall prey to this deception and we end up sort of devaluing. It was just, ah, you know, it's just like, what's the big deal? I just kind of hung out with the beast. No big deal, right? Well, God says, no, no, no. It wasn't just hanging with a beast. It was hopping in bed and having a sexual encounter, fornication, an orgy with demonic beings. You're like, that sounds pretty bad. It's because it is bad. God wants us to feel it's bad. He wants us to understand it's not good. It's really bad. Really, really bad. So much so to the point where he says it's like the most heinous form of sexual debauchery you can imagine. And he preaches, this angel does, to the people that are there on earth. He says to you know, recognize that Babylon has fallen. I think he makes an appeal here. First angel to the value. Second angel, he makes his appeal to the hopes. That's why he think he starts out, he says, listen, Babylon has fallen. She's fallen. She cannot help you. She can't do anything for you. Now, Babylon, this is one of the first times it kind of sort of makes its way into the text here. Now, the word Babylon sort of was synonymous with kind of the world system. You read in Peter's uh, little epistles, 
Peter writes about sort of the Babylon, he's probably referring to Jerusalem. In ancient days, uh, the Tower of Babel was sort of what started or prompted kind of this idea of Babylon or Babylonian uh, history. Um, And it was sort of uh, identified as the place where mankind turned away from God and says, we're going to do what we want to do. Again, the subplots. We will live according to our own subplots. It doesn't matter what the overarching, overriding meta-narrative is. We will make up our own, and we will just force it upon anybody else because we are the center of all things. And it ended up becoming sort of this image of debauchery and sinfulness and idolatry. And when the Babylonians uh, came in and they'd taken over the Jewish people uh, several hundred years before Christ, uh, came on the planet, and there was, it was sort of the culture in the center for idolatry. And I think Babylon sort of became uh, synonymous with the idea of sort of this ruler, uh, ruling, world-governing type of kingdom or domain. Um, you know, and sociologists today would basically call it like an alpha city or an alpha, uh, you know, yeah, an alpha city, kind of a city that's like number one or chiefest or most dominant, most powerful city on the planet. Now, you know, it, they can look at this and say, you know, maybe today it, they have various ways in which they judge this or gauge this. They have, you know, different alpha cities based upon economics, how much money they bring in, how impacting they are on the economy when it comes to um, um, even infrastructure, what type of um, systems do they have set up in the, in the city in terms of transportation, things of that nature, or political strength, political might. All of these things are sort of variables that kind of would identify kind of this alpha city. Now, back in the day, Babylon was sort of this alpha city. That was replaced, obviously, at some point by Rome. So when Peter was living, when John was living, the world-governing, world-dominating empire, unrivaled, powerful empire of the world was Rome. Okay, does that make sense? So when they speak of Babylon in their day, it's very possible, a lot of scholars debate as to whether or not this is the case or not, but I think it may be, or at least hinted at, probably a reference to Rome, that Rome was sort of the world-governing leader that was abusing God's saints, God's people. You can see this consistently go throughout all, uh, through the end of time. And I think, probably at the end of the age, there will also be maybe some, this is where sometimes people, and I think there's a probably a pretty good argument behind it as well, that someday there will be a world-governing leader, we call him the first beast, as we saw in uh, chapter 13, some would call him the Antichrist, some type of world-governing leader that will rise up and will try to unite all things under some sort of political, economic type powerhouse and might. But the reality is, it's sort of the same type of deception that Satan has always been doing all along. And so the point that I think this angel is trying to proclaim is that even though you might live in the middle of the system that's strong and powerful and gives all sorts of promises, his whole point is it's fallen. It can't deliver. No matter what it offers to us. I mean, this lesson should really be fresh in our minds. I mean, the past couple years, I mean, who would have ever thought Wall Street would have fallen again? I mean, who would have ever thought that from the time of the Depression? No one ever did. But it did. And our nation suffered. Still kind of coming out of that. Now, what, Greece is going through all sorts of gnarly stuff right now as well? And the point of the matter is, is that when we as human beings try to fix our attention and fix our mind and fix our hopes upon any other type of system other than God, other than following the Lamb, then we are literally setting ourselves up for destruction. That's the point. That's the point. I've made this analogy before. It's kind of like, you know, on Easter, you come home and you see this nice big chocolate bunny sitting on the table. You pick it up and you're about ready. You're super excited. You notice something not quite right about it. You pick it up, you unwrap it, you take a big bite of it, and it's hollow. I mean, it is a letdown. You're expecting this thing to be having substance in it, and it's worthless. The whole thing falls apart in your mouth. It's horrible. It's good for nothing. You can't even dip it in peanut butter. It's just absolutely worthless. And the point that I would make is this, is that that's what the angel's in essence saying, is that Babylon is fallen. It's fallen. It can't help you. It will be destroyed. The systems of this world, no matter how strong they are, no matter what they promise, no matter how much hope we expect them to deliver and give back, they can't. They just can't. Okay? So he goes on, and he basically says, make sure that you understand where your value's at. Make sure you understand where your hopes are at. Verse 9, he says, another angel, a third, 
followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger. Now, a lot of people, as I said last week, have tried to speculate, you know, what is the mark of the beast? And to be quite honest with you, there's a lot of really stupid interpretations of this. And let me just try to put it, just cut to the chase and say this. If you don't worship the lamb, you have the mark of the beast. Already, right now. Right now. You, you are not marked by Christ. Now, would that mean at some point, maybe something might happen? I don't know. I really don't know. But all I'm trying to say is this, is that in the book of Revelation, it's really clear. That's why I read chapter 14, the first five verses, right after the end of chapter 13, is because there's this juxtaposition between those who follow the beast and are marked with his number, 666. And then immediately in chapter 14, it starts out and says, there are also this another group of people that are marked with God. They are marked by God. They're identified by God. The point of the book of Revelation that's trying to convey is that you are either following the lamb and you are protected and marked and belonging to the lamb, belonging to God, or you're following this world system. You're following what the system embellishes, puts forth, promises, but fails to deliver. Does that make sense? That's the point that he's making. Now, I know a lot of Christians, man, they're like, you know, I'm really, really freaked out, man. If I go to a baseball game and they stamp my hand, do I have the mark? You know, I, I remember back, like, when I was a young Christian, I remember someone, listen to this Bible study tape, and it was just like, credit cards, mark of the beast, don't get one. What the? You know, it's just like, you got to be kidding me. Where does this stuff come from? I know where it comes from, but I won't say. But the point that I want to make is this, it's all part of, I think personally, a way to just get people freaked out, deceived, so that they fail to pay attention to the main issue, which is, is Jesus the center of my life? Am I following the Lamb? Am I submitting myself to his authority? Do I recognize his power? Do I love him? Do I serve him? Because the answer is, if I don't, I'm serving the dragon. I'm following the beast. So you might look at that and be like, I'm not following the beast. I just worship sex. No, you gotta understand, behind sex is the dragon. Behind the perversion of sex is the dragon. You're like, no, no, no I, I, I'm, not, I'm not satanic. I don't worship Satanism. I, I, I'm vastly, greatly devoted to my job. I've sacrificed everything for it. Even my family hates me because I'm a really good businessman. I've sacrificed everything for my job. No, 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 I don't worship the beast. You know, you may not think you worship the beast, but you worship the one who is driving that passion and giving you the bait, the Turkish delight wrapped up in your career. It says, just eat it. You're eating out of his hand. You're actually worshiping the beast. You see what I'm saying? You're like, no, no, I, 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 I worship myself. You're the beast. You see what I'm saying? We have this propensity to put all of these other things in front of us thinking, no, no, no. I'm not worshiping Satanism. I'm not devoting myself to the dark arts, right? I've never casted a spell on anybody. That is part of the deception because we think unless we have some sort of Harry Potter hat, we got a cape and we fly around and levitate, then we're not worshiping the beast. What I've been trying to say all along is that worshiping the beast is a life that's not worshiping the lamb. Devoting yourself to the lamb. That's why these three angels, the first one challenges the value systems. The second angel challenges what we trust and what we have hope in. The third one challenges what we worship, what we worship. You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all of this is really an issue of worship. Who do you worship? What do you worship? Do you know that basically worship is just you giving yourself over to something completely? That's why Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this, now therefore, beloved brethren, devote yourselves to God, worship him with all your might, and it's a whole idea of just, we give ourselves, but here's the way it works. Whatever it is we value most, whatever it is we value most, we see in our mind and we value it, we will then devote ourselves to that. And whatever it is that we devote ourselves to, we hope in that, because there's this reciprocation, this reciprocal hope. We hope that something will be delivered to me from that thing I value. Do you understand that? That's why we give ourselves to it. Nobody gives themselves to anything with the assumption that it's not going to deliver anything back. Does that make sense? We will 
usually only devote ourselves to something that which we value ultimately and we have this hope and this confidence we're going to deliver. In the end, this idea of worship, we just give ourselves to it. We give our time, we give our treasure, we give our money, we give our energy. We will make sacrifices of anything, like I said earlier, even if it's our family, anything that stands in our way. I know people that will sacrifice their wives or their spouses just so they can keep climbing up this corporate ladder to extend their career. It doesn't matter. It's what is valuable in their life. They will devote everything to it and worship it. What ends up happening, it creates this destructive cycle, dehumanizing cycle. It's what will ultimately end in destruction and hell because it's all being fed to us by the dragon. Do you understand that? That's why Jesus goes on to say, verse 10, he will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength, into the cup of his anger. Uh, back in those days, oftentimes when people would drink wine, they would oftentimes uh, dilute it. Uh, sometimes like one part to three parts water. And God's basically saying here, no, no dilution here. Complete, full strength, my choice wine from my cellar, you're gonna drink it all and, and, and you will suffer. You will, you, will, you will pay the ultimate final price. Uh, an infinite offense, or an offense against an infinite God makes that offense Infinite. Does that make sense? In other words, if God is infinite, if God is ultimate, God is supreme, God is eternal, any type of offense or sin against an eternal or infinite God actually is an eternal offense. Therefore, the punishment or penalty is an eternal or ultimate offense and penalty that will end up being paid. So here's what God goes on to say. He says in verse 11, or says, and he will drink of the full... Uh, anger of God's, of God's, cup of God's anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and there will be no rest, day or night, those worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Do you understand that basically at the end of the day, those whom God will judge are those who are followers of the beast, Listen carefully to this particular verse. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 says this. Jesus says, He will then say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. But then he adds this little caveat at the end. He says, That was prepared for the devil and his angels. If, if I understand what Jesus is trying to convey here clearly, Jesus' whole point is hell, this place of torment, this place of suffering, was not created for humanity. It was created for fallen angels. Angels that are evil, angels that have deceived, angels that have consistently thought fought to bring about deception in this world. But here's what ends up happening. Because we live in a world, as we looked at over the past seven weeks, this concept of spiritual warfare, we live in a world where demonic beings exist. They are real, they do tempt, they do get us to oftentimes buy into those lies. And we buy into those lies. And what salvation is, is when we open our eyes and we realize, I've been lied to. I've been deceived. Satan has lied to me. This is why in Colossians it talks about God has rescued us. He's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of Satan. And he's placed us into the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of light. That's what salvation is. We were once part of allies with um, worshipers of the dragon, of Satan. And because we were on his team, that meant we were in opposition to the lamb. I hope this makes sense to you guys. Because at the end of the day, this is why mankind will be judged. It will be because of his perennial attention and love and affection and energies given over to the dragon. And again, this is where the deception comes in because some of us, if you're here and you're maybe not even a Christian, in your mind you're thinking, this just doesn't make sense to me because I don't worship Satan. I don't, I don't, I've, I've never been in a seance. I've never like played a Ouija board. I've never like done anything evil like that. I don't even watch, you know, Friday the 13th movies. I just don't do anything that's wrong or evil like that. But you know what? That's part of the deception. Because you might even be like, look, I was brought up in a church. I know my Bible. But the, at the end of the day, I just don't 
think Jesus is that significant. And what I'm trying to say is this, is all this is part of the deception. It's the subtlety of it. It doesn't matter what type of Turkish delight the enemy gives you. It doesn't matter. He'll do whatever, whatever it takes, whatever it takes just to get you to hang out, to come back to the castle, wherever that's at, right? Okay, part about whatever, I don't know. And to just sit there at the feet and just keep eating, just to enjoy it as long as you're there and not with Jesus. That's all he cares about. That's all he cares about. Doesn't matter what the temptation is. Doesn't, know, doesn't matter what he keeps throwing at you. He's got lots of power, lots of ability, and his deception runs so deep in and throughout all things in this world. Everything's tainted. Everything's impacted. Everything's broken. Everything's affected. This is why I've made this point before the past several weeks, why Jesus exclusively alone is the only one qualified, capable, able to save because he's not of this world. He hasn't been tainted by the sin of this world. He hasn't drinking from the cup of Satan. He hasn't been tempted to sin. Even though he was tempted on all sides like us, he never did it. He never took the bait, never drank the cup, never fell, fell prey to the dragon. Not once, not in any way. That alone enables him to be our savior. He came as a missionary to seek and save those who were lost. And in the darkness, this is why we love Jesus. Verse 12, and it goes on, it says, and here is the call to endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says uh, the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, from their deeds, uh, for their deeds do follow them. So this is kind of like a beatitude, kind of right there in the middle of Revelation. It's like, God says, blessed are you who endure. Blessed of you are you who keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, even though it's hard, even though you live in a culture where everything is opposed to Jesus, where everything stands opposed to Christ. You might work in a work environment and be in a place, if you're a student, you're in a classroom where, you know, the teacher's just dissing Christ, and you're like, I don't know what to do. Don't, don't give in. Don't, I mean, you're not going to, if you're a Christian and you're like, I don't want to say anything, you're not going to lose your salvation for that. But my point is that, you know, God wants to empower you. He wants to give you strength. He wants to enable you so that you don't give prey or give in to the bait that oftentimes is being thrown out there. That we can be strong, can have power and might, and not just simply succumb to cowardice. God wants to help us. He wants to strengthen us. We all need that. I need that. I mean, I don't, can't tell you how many times I find myself cowering. And it is really just the plight of the church nowadays today, is we just cower. And it always goes back to who we really fear. Do we fear God? Do we really fear God? Do we really recognize that God ultimately is the one who my devotion ought to be rendered to? Verse 15, he says this, and the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Whoops, wrong verse, page flip. And I looked and beheld a white cloud, and I was seated on the cloud. One who was seated on the cloud was the Son of Man, and the golden crown that was on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, we just read about three angels, and uh, we're going to read about three more angels in just a second here. But standing between the first triad and the second triad is Christ. Christ on a cloud. Christ with a crown. And Christ with a sickle in his hand. But what kind of sickle is it, Calvary Slow? It's a sharp sickle. It's a sharp sickle. Jesus is ready to go out and do business. Uh, in Matthew's uh, gospel, it basically says of Jesus that he was the one that came and sowed good seed. The good seed was sown by the Son of Man. Jesus came to sow this good seed. It's Matthew chapter 13, verse 37. And yet now Jesus is going to come back one day and he's going to harvest that seed. That's what you're seeing here in this picture. I think this is sort of a flash forward to what will happen in the preceding, uh, preceding chapters that will end up taking place uh, in, the next, in the next week as we look at this next week. But what's going on right now, it's kind of a little bit of a flash forward as to what's going to be happening here. But what he wants us to understand with regard to Jesus in this particular setting is that Jesus is coming back. He's on a cloud, which uh, recognizes or gives some sort of evidence of the fact of his kingly ship, 
uh, kingship, his power, his authority, his greatness. Uh, the gold crown upon his head uh, gives uh, allusion to the fact that he is, is powerful, he's a king, he's mighty. Uh, and he's, he's, he's just a, he's this great, almighty, all-powerful king who's coming to take care of the evil that's on this earth, that's infected this earth like a plague. And then ultimately he's got this sickle in his hand. A sickle was this really long, kind of a, a big handle, not a sword, but it was like this big long piece of wood and then on top there's kind of like this arch piece that would come out. So imagine this big long stick and then this big piece like this. And what they would do, they oftentimes end up have another handle coming out in the middle and they would go like this and they would just kind of sickle and pick up all the sheaves that are around there and the whole idea was to harvest, to bring about a harvest. And so Jesus is on his way back, and he's going to bring about a harvest, all right? These are pictures that uh, Matthew chapter 25 talks about. It says that he's going to come back in the clouds and in great glory. This is Jesus literally coming back, about ready to harvest uh, that end time scenario that's taking place here. And this is in verse 15. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. Now this is uh, another angel. So he comes out of the throne of God, and he actually gives, um, not a, you know, he gives a command from God, basically saying, all right, go for it. Uh, time to begin. Clock in. Ready to go. The whole point is now you can begin uh, reaping your harvest. And then it goes on to say, it says, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he set on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. So again, this is the, I think at this time, the, the fourth, or the fifth angel that he begins to identify. And then it goes on and makes the point, verse 16, another angel came out of the altar, and the angel who, is, who has authority over fire and he called with a loud voice, the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now I want you to listen to this real quick. Some scholars see these two harvests as being one harvest, but using different metaphors. Other scholars see this as sort of a two harvest, uh, one of which is kind of like a harvest of believers, another is a harvest of God's judgment. Uh, the picture or the metaphor of taking the, want, or the grapes, uh, harvest these, harvesting these, putting them into the vat, and then uh, you know, stepping on them, the way they would oftentimes harvest these back in the day is they would take these big, large clusters of grapes, they would have this huge vat, sometimes they'd have like a, you know, they'd have this big party where everybody would come in and hopefully they would like actually wash their feet. And after that, everybody would just, you know, take off their shoes and then they would start jumping all up and down on these grapes. You know, to get kids in there. It's like fun. People have a lot of fun. You fall down. It's great. You know, and, and you're squishing all the grapes and the grapes kind of go through this little sieve and kind of separates pulp from the actual juice, but the juice kind of flows down. This is the imagery that Jesus is wanting us to understand that at some point, at some point in the future, there will be a coming judgment. Will God, where God will judge. God will judge the evil preeminence in this world. This is why, guys, you need to understand the seduction of the dragon is great. Please understand. I mean, this is, this is really about you understanding the, the fact that sin, sin is the Turkish delight. It's the things that we indulge ourselves in thinking it's harmless, thinking it's no big deal, thinking if I just take a little bit here, no big deal. But what ends up happening is you indulge in that, now you become part of the kingdom of darkness. And the Bible says we are actually born into that. We by nature are children of wrath, just like others. We by nature, unless we do, unless something happens in our lives and we begin to respond and follow the Lamb, we've all been deceived. We've all fallen prey to the dragon. There's no room for people sitting back and being like, well, I went to church my whole life. It was a great church. They taught the Bible. It doesn't matter. Do you follow the Lamb? Well, my grandma's a Christian. Do you follow the lamb? 
I have a big Bible. It doesn't matter. Do you follow the Lamb? I memorized a few verses. Do you follow the Lamb? I'm spiritual. Do you follow the Lamb? Do you understand? Everything in this world is tainted by the dragon, seduced by the dragon. Every sin we indulge in is just another flavor of Turkish delight coming out of his hand. That's all it is. You love the sin, you're actually saying, I love the dragon who gives it to me. And unless you turn, unless you change the way that you think, unless your eyes are open and you realize the evil of which you're eating out of, you too will be judged forever and ever and ever. You too will be a part of this great day in which the clusters of grapes will be crushed underneath the feet of Jesus. This is so, so serious. This is not church talk. This is not talking about your best life now. This is not about you figuring out a way to better handle your finances. This is about you and Jesus. Who do you follow today? Who do you worship today? Who do you devote the highest honor, privilege, praise, love, affection in your heart? Who is it rendered to today? This is what it's all about. Listen to this. Finishes up here in verse 20. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Some translations might even say about 150 miles. Take a look at the very next slide. I want you to take a look at this. Throughout the New Testament, the preachers of the New Testament actually preached and proclaimed of a coming judgment. This is, this is not just, you know, some people are like, is he preaching hellfire and brimstone? Well, it talks about hellfire and brimstone, so yeah, I guess that's what I'm doing. But the reality is, it's what the Bible says. I, mean, I don't want to sugarcoat this stuff. I don't want to somehow kind of gloss it over because it makes a few people, you know, freaked out. It's just like, oh, nobody wants to talk about this. Might not come back to church next week. It doesn't matter. I don't really care, to be honest with you. Because at the end of the day, what these angels, the first three angels proclaim, it is the final gospel presentation that will ever be heard on the planet. And then after that comes the end. We don't know when the end will be the end. We don't know. But every day that we hear the gospel proclaimed to us, it's an evidence of grace. Do you know that right now, I'm, you know, I'm not the best preacher. You might think I'm annoying, but that's fine. But even, even the fact of what I'm able to say right now, and the best way that I'm capable of saying about the cross, about the grace of God, that's an evidence of God's love and grace and affection for you. That is, when you're driving down the street, flip on Christian radio. I don't like a lot of Christian radio. And even some of that, sometimes, every once in a while, you might hear some guy who's semi-decent tell you about Jesus. That's the grace of God. Christian television is 100 times worse. Out of 100 preachers, maybe half decent. Even that, you might hear somebody preach something about Jesus. Even that is the grace of God. Every time you hear the message, God's grace gospel going out. It's his grace to you to repent, to turn, to recognize the seduction, to understand the hand that's feeding you may actually be the hand of the dragon. And he just keeps you happy. As long as you're seduced, as long as you're not with the lamb. Here's what the New Testament writers wrote. Acts chapter 10 verse 42, he says this, he charges to preach unto the people and to testify that this is he who is ordained by God to be the judge of living and the dead. Peter's like, look, listen, there's going to come a point where God will judge. Uh, jump down to Paul and Athens in about verse 29. and jump down in there, verse 31 actually. He says, because he's fixed a day by which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he's saying there will come a day when there will be a judgment. And the judgment will ultimately come through Jesus. That's what we just read here, guys. Jesus coming with a sharp sickle in his hand. Paul, before this ruler named Felix, chapter 24 in the book of Acts, verse 25, says, and he reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Here's what you need to understand, guys, is that there is a judgment that will come. You say, is he trying to scare the hell out of me? 
No, to be quite honest with you, I'm trying to scare you out of hell. I want you to be aware of the reality of the world and the life in which we live in. The dragon is real. The beast is real. His evil is real. It's pervasive. It's real. Jesus came into this world as real. Jesus' death on the cross was real. It was meant to save us from the deception. And if I can just try to help us to wrap our minds around this, I'm going to read the last part of the verse and be done. I just want you to think about this because some of us were like, I just don't get it. I don't really know what I've been saved from. I just was brought up in church and I say the sinner's prayer and I thought I was, I was saved, right? And everything was just great. I honestly believe that there will come a day in glory where we will be sitting around the throne of God and we will be worshiping Christ. We will begin to see things as they are, as they truly are. I honestly believe that one day we will begin to realize just how much I was deceived in this life, even as a Christian. How many lies I believed. That separated me from good brothers and sisters. How many things I've done in this life, even as a Christian, that were seduced by the hand of the dragon. Even before I was a Christian, all of the vast lies that I swallowed, all of the sins that I clung to and committed myself to, all of the paths in life that I was going down. I I just have this picture in my mind, one of the most unbelievably sweet things about heaven is we will be sitting there at the feet of Jesus and we will be absolutely blown away because we will then begin to realize just the depth and the length and the width and the breadth to which he has gone to seek and save us from not only our own depravity, but from the deception that the dragon always places in front of us. And we will worship, and we will sing, and we will thank God for what he's done in our lives, and we also thank God for the justice that he enacts. I want to read this, and I'm going to finish by actually showing you guys this little video clip, and then Nick will lead us in some worship, and... Uh, We'll give our tithes and our offerings to the Lord. We'll sing to God. We'll respond by worshiping him. We'll respond by partaking of the communion that reminds us that Jesus did physically die, that Jesus did physically shed his blood. When we drink the cup and we eat the bread, that it will remind us that it was because of our sin, our deception, that he did that. Listen to this. And then I saw another angel, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. We'll see that next week. And then I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and all those for whom uh, the beast had conquered, and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, they all had harps of of God in their hands. And they all sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. And here's what they sang. John peels back the future and he allows us to see a scene in heaven where this vast host of people, just like you and I. In fact, I wouldn't be so shocked if this is you and I. And we will sing and we will worship and we'll proclaim to God the things that he's done. Very reminiscent of another subplot a long time ago called the Exodus. It was a subplot, not the main plot. It was a subplot pointing forth to the ultimate plot of which another deliverer would come and seek and rescue those who are caught in the slavery and bondage of another slave master, Satan, and deliver them and set them free and pay a great price in the meantime. And here's the song they sing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear you, O God, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls of wrath, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could ever enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. If you have ever, have ever asked the question, why? Why has this happened? If you've ever wondered, where's justice? If you've ever written in your journal, will things change? If you've ever voted, 
hoping your vote will bring change? Have you ever protested? Have you ever raised your hand and said, there's got to be another way. Is there another way? If you've ever sat over the grave of someone you've loved and cherished and scratched your head and said, why? You know there's something wrong and broken in this world. You know that. And we don't have answers to that in this world. We medicate ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We manipulate circumstances. And at the end of the day, it still prevails until the gospel comes along and says, it is finished. Enter into my story. I'll make it right. Come to set you free from your endless, deadly subplot where nothing exists except a perennial tension which will ultimately lead to your death because you will become one with that. Jesus says, I've come to save you from the deception of yourself to free you into my story, to bring you into my eternity, to bring you into my life. How great is our God. That's why we worship God. That's why we love Jesus. We're gonna respond to him. But before we do, I want you guys to listen to this little video clip. Some of you may have heard it. It's this old black preacher. I don't know if he's alive around anymore. Some of you may have seen it probably on the internet, put it on my blog before. I just want you to listen to it, all right? Just listen to it. Listen to what he has to say. I don't know, close your eyes. Just, just meditate on the things that he has to say about it. Then we're going to just sing some songs of worship. We'll partake in communion. We'll give our tithes and our offerings. I just want to say, those of you that are students and you heard, you know, things I communicated last week, you guys are awesome. Thank God. You guys just totally rose to the challenge. This is amazing. God bless. You guys keep it up, man. God's going to be doing some great things. We're excited to see what God's going to do. If you want to give, give joyfully to God. If you're one of our guests, don't feel any obligation whatsoever to give. We want to give because we love Jesus, because God's a generous giver. Partake of communion. Confess sin to God. Confessing sin, you know what that is? It's basically just saying, Lord, I don't want to live under the deception of the evil one anymore. Break the bonds. I don't want to live under the deception of the evil one. Jesus set me free. Jesus sets you free. We're going to worship and respond. Listen to this little clip, and then we'll worship. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-framed of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. 